Well, guys, let's get started, shall we? We'll let the stragglers come on in. And again, you can uh, make yourself at home. Get up, get down. Don't worry about any of that. And um, don't be afraid to sit with these two guys over here at this table. (laughs) (laughs) Deodorant's a good thing. No, you can stay close. But um, I want to uh, start by uh, just working back through a few things and involving you a little bit. Um, First, though, I just want to encourage you to not give up on your Bible reading. And um, you'll you'll always go through cycles and seasons and and mountains and valleys where it's going really well, and then it's just uh, you you don't know how you fell off the wagon. And you can't even see the wagon that's so far down the road. Um, But just get back on and just pick up where where your current day is and just keep reading, okay? Um, We need to have a kind of a two different vantage points in which you're looking in on your Bible reading. One is, yes, you need to read it every day. Absolutely, you need to. Um, Your your heart needs to be fed from God's Word. But you also need to have the long-term look, and that is... As you're reading your Bible, guys, you're morning. As you're as you're reading your Bible, what you're really looking for is a lifetime too of interaction with Scripture. You've got a whole lifetime um, to interact with it. So if you missed a section or a part one, you know, in this year's Bible reading, if you can go back and make it up, that's great. But if you can't, you know, Lord willing, you're going to be reading for the next, you know, however many decades. Pick it up. You'll, you'll get it again. So don't don't get so worked up that you missed 10 days and so I, I don't even know what to do and, and just get so defeated. Just start reading again. Just pick up and plod and go through. Um, Bible reading, a lot of times, it just takes the discipline of plodding. And plodding sounds boring. It sounds like you're something you can do with your heart not engaged in. That's not what I'm talking about. But there is something about where you can just put your head down and just take another step. You don't need to worry about other stuff. Just keep pushing. Take one more step, one more step, one more step. So keep up your Bible reading. Don't stop. Keep it going, okay, guys? Um, and let's see, with the new year coming, for you guys, that probably doesn't make a big uh, deal in terms of it's probably not a good time to change your reading plan. Stay with the one you're on, I, I would think. Um, otherwise, if you start a new one, you might end up reading the very same things you're reading right now in your current plan. Um, but if you do switch plans at the beginning of the year because you kind of want to be on a January to December thing, try to pick one that is maybe not going to at least overlap too much with what you've already done in the last few months, okay? Um, all that kind of good stuff. All right, um, let's, let's review uh, why we are even doing this, what, um, what BUILD is all about. I want um, you guys to help me think through the first four disciplines. And those disciplines are on the back of your notebook. Um, if you want to flip it over and look at it, you can. That's great. But tell me, somebody tell me from your perspective, and I don't want you to read what's on there, but tell me in your own words, what's, what's discipline one about? Why do we want to become men disciplined with our hearts? What does that mean? How would you communicate that to somebody else? in your own words. We'll just build on it with a bunch of different comments from me. What are we after with discipline one? 
expressing a heartfelt love for the Lord. Fostering? Yeah. Good. Shepherding. Excellent. Shepherding. That work. Good. David. Strong foundation. Very good. What else? How would you add to that? What if you what if you I I'd look yeah. at it if if you don't do that. Good. And and I'm fifty three, so there might be somebody here older than me. But I, I've had periods in my life where the the ten days of not reading the Bible could have been more like ten months. And we we never had a season where we just didn't go to church. You could be going to church and thinking about work, thinking about Jacob's basketball team when he was in fifth grade, because I was the coach, thinking about whatever, and you're not feeding your heart, or you're just you're just not you're just not having the gospel over you because you're not you're not there. You don't necessarily get into bad sin, but you're not with God, so it's sin. That's right. That's really that's really good. I mean, that was exactly what where I was going to go in terms of what if you play leapfrog over your heart? Um, you will find yourself um, <coughs> an empty man. You, you may look, you may have a nice shiny Christian outside because you're going to church everybody else sees you and they make assumptions about you you can be in a small group you can be committed to all kinds of Christian things but the reality is is that the heart is bone dry and does not know a nearness to God that it should know and Psalm 73 nearness to God is my good it's the only good that you and I have what if we don't have nearness to God now look positionally we are near to God by the work of Jesus Christ. That'll never change. But there is a practical nearness that comes through pursuit of him. That's the way he left us in this condition. Um, and that's what we're talking about, is to not take for granted and, and take advantage of the positional nearness that he accomplished by his grace alone, apart from you, in his death on the cross. But now, in having brought you near to himself, be near to him. So don't skip over that. If you don't skip over that, then you've got a fullness that it's like filling up, you know, like when you're a kid or if you've got kids and you, you pour yourself a glass of milk and you're not really paying attention, all of a sudden it goes all the way to the top. And it's just like so full that you can get down on eye level and you can see it's crested over, you know, it's arced over. And you think you can move that and take a drink without spilling anything. And you can't. You just touch it and it just spills over. That's the kind of man you need to be. Your heart needs to be so full of God in his word that it just spills out everywhere. Um, that's the kind of leadership this church needs. Um, that's the kind of leadership any church needs. All churches need. Um, so you guys need to be the ones to discipline yourselves to do that. Because somebody else can't do it for you. Go ahead. One of the things that this 
Piper says, he says, <clears throat> my bucket leaks. <laughs> and so does yours, because it, that's just the nature of, of our fallen condition, that you, you're you constantly needing to run fresh water from the Word of God into your heart, because it's getting lost in the holes. <laughs> and so you got to keep it filled up. And that's what happens. That's the danger of going for a period of time without reading at all. Or reading in a way that's not filling you with nearness to God. Because it is possible to interact with God's Word and not meet with God. Um, read the Gospels and watch for that group called the Pharisees. They had extensive interaction with their scribes who were experts in the law, and these men did not know God at all. Because he stood right in front of them and they crucified him. And that was God's plan all along anyway. To, uh, to fulfill his plan and his son through people who didn't know him. So, good. Now, talking about discipline number two, the home. What are we after there? What's, what's that about? Talk about it in terms of progression. And what do you mean by that? Um, like generationally. Okay. Very good. The next generation can be impacted there. Very good. What else? Probably similar to what you were, <coughs> what you were saying, just about uh, like the cup. Um, like after we're, I guess after we're so full, uh, it should spill over to those that are closest to us, which mm. would be first off in our homes before it goes elsewhere. Yeah. Very good. Absolutely. What else would you say? <coughs> Being faithful with the small. <coughs> yeah, with the little things first. Yeah. Anything else? I I I do believe that after being Christians ourselves, our first responsibilities with our families, before our jobs, before anything else, our wives and our kids. I think that's our first responsibility towards God. Be, we should be able to impact the whole. Sure. That's good. Mm-hmm. 
God has made it, um, has woven into the fiber of the mission of the gospel men who have integrity in their homes. Take that away, and there is no mission with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God did it that way. Not the church, not leadership in any one church, in any one area, at any one time. God did it that way. A man must be a man of integrity, and he needs to have that integrity first and, and foremost at his home. Uh, with his wife and with his children, and um, begin to express those things now in the place where you, you live, um, with the people that you live with. Work on that. Um, and then just keep watching the, the, the sinful tendency in our flesh to, to always play leapfrog. To, you, have you ever noticed, I'm, I'm this way. Um, one, of the things, one of the things that I have to remind myself of um, over and over is that wherever you are, be all there. In other words, I'm right here at Build right now, but my nature is I am thinking about a 100-page paper that I have due January 1 that's actually going to be more like 130 pages. Um, and what I'm going to do when, as soon as this is over, and um, I, so I can already start planning for stuff like that. You can be sitting at home with your wife and your kids or whatever, and you're thinking of work. You can be at work, and you're thinking about what's going to happen after work. You can be wherever you are, but you're not really all there. And it takes discipline to gather yourself up and put yourself there so that you don't play leapfrog over the events of your life and the people of your life. And we do that with our families. Well, we assume, it, I live with them. I, I, we're like in the same building, you know, the same house, and so everything must be okay. And so I'll just go do the other things that I'm thinking of beyond this. And, and you, you just can't. So wherever you are with your family, be there. Be there with them. Invest yourself in them. Take time with your wife. Care for your wife. Um, ask for her to care for you. Build a strong relationship there with, with those who are in your home. And um, you get that kind of integrity and that kind of quality relationship there. And I tell you what, the, the foundation for ministry that builds and gets launched from there is huge. And all you have to do is look back through Christian history, recent, like within your lifetime, and way before that, and the and Christian history is littered with men who ruined themselves, ruined their families, and ruined churches because they didn't pay attention to these things. And But by the grace of God, there would go every single one of us. I will go there, and I will ruin my life, I will ruin my family, I will ruin this church, but by the grace of God. Because that is the nature of the flesh. And that is why we've got to discipline our hearts to come before God and His Word and to be humble and, and you need to be fearful of sin in a way that you know that it would at any moment seek to pounce on you like it wanted with Cain. Um, so guys, I mean, really, we've, we've, we have to humble ourselves and come before God, take care of our families. Um, then what's Discipline 3 all about? Not skipping one and two. Not skipping one and two. <laughs> you don't skip one and two, and I, you're, you are ready for some very profitable number three. Very profitable. Yeah. 
Definitely. And it's not like, we've talked about this, there's sequentiality to it, right? But it's not strict in that you only, you know, like, like grade school is the heart, junior high is, um, you know, the home, high school then is um, the ministry. You can't get to high school until you finish junior high. We're not talking about the disciplines that way. But there is a sense in which you need to kind of always be running through all three of them. Um, so uh, be working on one and two, and then discipline three comes. Um, and that's what we're going to be really um, focusing on again this morning. And then lastly, what's discipline four? We'll just go through the first four this morning. What, what's the point of discipline four in, in a leadership development like ministry? What are we after there? Yeah. I like what you were saying about the heart and uh, being the right kind of messenger. Same principle, like just being the right kind of leader. Um, and how so do you, so you represent well? Good. How do we know what the right kind of leader is? What does the right kind of leader look like? That's what discipline four is all about, right? We've got. We've got, we've got some awesome lists in Scripture that we can measure our lives up against. So um, we'll get to that um, in the new year and start talking about what it means, uh, what, what the beacon layer of leadership in a church looks like. And we'll put some things in your hands that can help you on a daily basis be praying through those qualifications, prayerfully addressing those qualifications in your life, not just studying and knowing what that what what it means to be dignified, but to pray about being dignified and to asking God to make you into a dignified man, somebody who's serious-minded. Um, so, anyway, good. I uh, want to keep those before you all the time. Let's um, look at your quote. This is an adjusted quote uh, of, from Piper, Don't Waste Your Life. How many of you have read that book, Don't Waste Your Life? Oh, good. You need to, if you have not read that book, that is a must-get. And I took this and I, I tweaked it. One of the things I like to do when I read is I, when I find good quotes, I'll, when I'm done reading the book, I'll go back through the book and look at my quotes that I isolated. And then I will just sit at my computer and a little bit every day at the beginning of my day and I get in the office, I'll have my book open, and I will type the quotes out. But I will take the quotes and I will type them so that they kind of reflect, um, when I look at them then on that document, that they're like my words to God. So I'll take a quote from a book and I'll turn them into my words from God. So this is, I think, I, I did this a while ago, so I th and I think that's what it is because it's, it's first person. Anyway, let's, let me read it for you guys. Follow along. In order to make others glad in God with an everlasting gladness, not a, not a temporary gladness, not a worldly gladness, my life must show that you are more precious than life. So again, you know, what's he saying? He's not skipping over his own heart. To do this, I must make sacrificial life choices rooted in the assurance that magnifying Christ through generosity and mercy is more satisfying than selfishness. If Christ is an all-satisfying treasure and promises to provide all my needs, even through famine and nakedness, then to live as though I have all the same values as the, as the world would betray you. How am I using our money, and how do I feel about my possessions? If I look like my life is devoted to getting and maintaining things, 
I will look like the world, and that will not make Christ look great. You will look like, and this is to God, God, you will look like a religious side interest that may be useful for escaping hell in the end, but doesn't make much difference in what I live and love here. That is what most of Christianity looks like in America today. God is a side interest, and he's helpful for escaping hell in the end, but right now, he really doesn't make all that much difference in, I guess, work and family and life, and that is an abomination. You will not look like an all-satisfying treasure, and that will not make others glad in God. If I lived more like this, wouldn't I be asked more often about the reason for the hope that is in me? Why don't people ask me about my hope? The answer is probably that I look as if I hope in the same things they do. My life doesn't look like it is on the Calvary Road, stripped down for sacrificial love, serving others with the sweet assurance that I don't need to be rewarded in this life. I don't need to be rewarded in this life. Grace reality. Grace truth. Grace proposition that is true, independent of me. I don't need to be rewarded in this life. You don't need to be rewarded in this life. And if there is a lesson you need to learn in leadership in the church, it is this one. You'll see it in Paul today. You don't need to be rewarded in this life. If you labor to get rewarded in this life, oh, you will be miserable and you will make other people around you miserable. You do not need to be rewarded in this life. So with that in mind, let's pray and then we're going to jump into 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these guys and for this um, opportunity just to be together. Thank you for um, drawing near to us in your son, Jesus. Thank you for um, this time of year where we can think about that in um, ways maybe that we don't the rest of the year. Thank you for humbling yourself, Christ, um, to be born of a helpless babe who's very dependent upon mother Father, and um, thank you for growing into a man who was not afraid to take on the sin of those he would save. How great you are, and how awesome you are, how merciful you are, how sweetly you condescend to me in all of my brokenness and sinfulness. And we pray that you would um, draw near to us this morning again that we would draw near to you, that we would view this time together in your word as an opportunity to draw near to you, that we would shepherd our own hearts in this time, and um, that you would have your way in our lives. And again, Lord, we just thank you for these men, and thank you for this church and what you're doing in it. And I pray, Lord, that this would help this morning. This would help build a strong foundation of leadership in this church so that the church lasts far beyond any one of us that you would weave these kinds of um, disciplines into the life of this church, that, they, they'd, that they'd never be lost. So that this church would last um, strongly and be pure until you come back. How great you are, how awesome you are. We need you desperately, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, make yourself at home. Get up and down, do whatever you need to do. Okay? And let's take your... Um, sheet that you got this morning on 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And I have to say, I think the coffee this morning over there is exceptional. I don't know. I think I've had three cups already. I'm feeling the ping. I'm ready to go. Um, it is good. I'm thinking about having some more.
Just save a cup. Um, how many of you went last night to the, while you're up and around, who went last night to the sing stuff? What was that called anyway? Christmas in the Park or whatever? That was so much fun. And where are your two counterparts? You know what I mean? Doug? I don't know. I just you need to call them. <laughs> Josh, Army, wake up. <laughs> They're famous now. Um, all right. Take your Bibles. Let's open up to First Thessalonians chapter two, verse one. Last time we were together, we were in First Thessalonians one verses. He's calling them eleven, five through uh, ten, and we're going to pick up now with uh, verses one to twelve in chapter two. Uh, so. What these are this morning is uh, these are really just observations. Like if you were if you were just going to sit down and, and just kind of spend time with this text, what kind of observations could we come up with as we as we look at it? Um, and I have six of them for you. What I want to do though is I want to read um, chapter one verse five through chapter two verse twelve because I want you to be reminded of what we did the first time, and then we're going to look into our text this morning, okay? Verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians 1. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how 
like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. <clears throat> We're on discipline three, the ministry, looking at the example of Paul. And in chapter two, I want to point you to six gospel-centered truths for ministry. This, these first two chapters are just full of the gospel, talking about um, the ministry of the gospel without really defining what the gospel is um, in terms of its content. Um, the gospel is Jesus Christ crucified for forgiveness of sins. Um, it, it doesn't go into that, but Paul talks about the gospel over and over. So let's start with number one. Life and ministry <clears throat> must be concerned first and most with engaging people with the gospel. That's the first truth. If ministry is not concerned with engaging people with the gospel, then I don't really know what it is. And neither does Paul. And I've got, uh, let's see, what, four fundamentals of gospel-centered ministry in verses 1 to 2. Okay? And so you, you, you got some blanks to fill in. Do you see that on your sheet? Um, so uh, number one, or the first one there, gospel ministry is never hollow or found wanting. <clears throat> and that's based off of the word vain. In verse one, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. That's what vain means. It means to be hollow. It means to be empty. It means to be found wanting in purpose, wanting in earnestness. And he says, you know that our coming to you when we were with you, our entrance into your lives, that was not a hollow thing. It was not an empty interaction. It was not a wanting interaction. You know what that means? Their time together was marked by a fullness. When we came to you, it wasn't empty. It was full. It wasn't lacking. It was overflowing. And what made all the difference? Verse 2 we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel. The reason it wasn't empty was because it was about the gospel. Okay? Now, I have a question for you. And your, your question, your assignment for next time when we come back together in January is basically just taking these questions out and I put them on your assignment and you're going to think through these questions yourself for you and bring them uh, in January. But the first question, what would happen to your ministry if the gospel is not central in your relationships, this, what does it mean? It means that your relationships and your interactions will be full of emptiness. <coughs> full of emptiness. That's kind of a weird way to say it. Will be empty. There's an emptiness in relationships when the gospel is not central. Paul says, you know that when we came to you, it was not empty. We declared to you the gospel. That's why it wasn't empty. And the reality is, is that there is an emptiness present in relationships if the gospel is not central. So this is why you have to engage people with the gospel. Uh, second, fundamental. Gospel ministry is on a never-ending pursuit of people. On a never-ending pursuit of people. I love this about the Apostle Paul. When I grow up, I want to be like him more and more. Um, check this out. We had already suffered and been shamefully treated by people at Philippi. I mean, what a horrible experience that must have been. In fact, you can go back to Acts chapter 16, verses 19 through chapter 17, verse 10, and you can see the, the whole account of leaving from Philippi, getting to Thessalonica, to when he leaves Thessalonica. Now, he has this horrible experience in Philippi with people. What would you do? Hey, let's go hang out with some more people. 
Maybe like vacation, retreat. I, I just want to give me some space. It's safer by myself when I minister with the gospel. I don't get beat up. I don't find myself under a pile of rocks. Paul might say. But Paul is on a never-ending pursuit of people. Prior to this, he had a horrible experience, but Paul had a never-ending drive towards people. Why? Well, it's just personality-wise. He's just a people person. That's why. No, because the gospel is about people. The gospel, when it bears fruit in Paul, it drives him to people. It drives him to people. It doesn't drive him to a study up on top of a mountain to do some gospel writing where he never will interact with people. No, it drives him into other people's lives. Gospel ministry is on a never-ending pursuit of people. That's the fruit of the gospel in your life. How do you know when the gospel is bearing fruit in your life? You'll you love people. You love people. And you'll want to be with them. And you'll want to explain the gospel. And you want to demonstrate the gospel. So the question for you is, do you now, right now, in your life, do you have people in your sights and people in your prayers that you're thinking of? Who, who am I going to go to next with the gospel? Who's, who's on my radar right now in a huge way? And if you don't have somebody, you need to come up with somebody, and you need to be able to be praying to God about that so that the gospel boundaries as they currently stand get pushed out because that's what the gospel does in you. It bears fruit in you by making you want to say, you know, not enough people know the gospel. They don't. I, I want to be a part of going to the next person with the gospel. Third, fundamental. Gospel ministry is often surrounded by trouble and trial. I'm going to feed you four sandwiches this morning. Here's the first one from first, uh, from first Thessalonians 2. And I love, this is Later in the year, we're going to get to um, a little bit of how to study the Bible. We'll, we'll do some um, interpretation type things, some hermeneutics together, how to study the Bible type stuff. One of the favorite things that Paul uses that you want to watch for in Paul, and really all of Scripture, but Paul especially, is he uses sandwiches. Now, think about what a sandwich is. The top and the bottom are the same. Okay? Bread, bread. And in the middle, meat, or PB&J if you're my kids, okay? But same thing on top, same thing on the bottom. So you want to be watching for a theme that Paul mentions, and then if you see it again shortly thereafter, that should be like, whoa, stop, bookends. What's in the middle? And watch for that. Here's your first sandwich. Watch this, verse 2. We had already suffered and been shamefully treated. <laughs> Look at how the verse ends. We were in the midst of much conflict. Okay, do you see that? Paul is making a point here. We got beat up. We're, we're shamefully treated. That's the top layer of bread. The bottom is we're in a lot of conflict. Now, what's in the middle? What does he say in between that? The gospel. We have the boldness in our God to proclaim the gospel. The gospel is in the middle of what? Trial. Trouble. And that is often the way that it goes. So what is... Now, think about that. If you are driven, if, if you give in to the temptation to be driven by comfort in your relationships, and every single one of us is that way, some of us more so than others, and I would say I really like to be comfortable in relationships. 
if I get driven by that, one of the first things that I'll be tempted to do is water down the gospel because it causes trouble. The gospel causes trouble. You know what the gospel does? The gospel brings one kingdom against another in the most the most amazing clash of kingdoms that this world knows. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of the beloved son Jesus, they go against each other in the gospel. And so, of course, there's going to be times when that is not a pleasant experience in relationships. But that's not what drives us because we know the Holy Spirit loves to use the gospel to overthrow the kingdom of the one that he's saving. And so we love to see the walls come down. But boy... We can be driven by affirmation rather than the gospel. And Paul was never driven by affirmation. He's, this, is, this whole passage is laden with that. We weren't out to please you. We were out to bring the gospel. So a couple of questions for you to think about. How much trouble exists in your relationships because of the gospel? Because of the gospel. Underline that. How much trouble exists in your relationships because of the gospel? Look, I have trouble in my relationships because of my sin. Because of how I'm just sinful with my wife sometimes and my kids, and that causes trouble. That's not what we're saying. That kind of trouble is not evidence that the gospel is at the center of your relationship. That's evidence that sin is at the center of my relationships. But how many relationships do you have that have trouble in them because of the gospel? Because of the gospel. Can I give you... Next question, what might be some reasons for the absence of trouble in our relationships? Here's a few things that I thought of, and then you can think of more when you do your assignment. Um, there might be, trouble might be absent in some of our relationships because we're not extending the gospel. Because we're not extending the gospel. Another reason why there might not be trouble in our relationships is that I'm really not close enough to the person to see a clash of kingdoms take place. May not be really close to people. And thirdly, the reason that there might not be trouble in relationships is because, really, in all honesty, the gospel is more like a satellite that comes around every once in a while, rather than it's the it's the heart, it's the center of gravity of everything. Um, I was talking with or listening to Steve Brotherton share the other day in the, um, I think it was in an elder meeting. can't remember where it was. must have been. And he said that he, a co-worker of his heard him on the phone with his wife, heard him speaking sweetly and kindly to her, and he expressed his love for Janie. And the co-worker, the lady, said, Wow. I wish my husband loved me like that. I think she had been through a divorce and or was in a divorce. And Steve immediately stepped through that door she made with the gospel. And her response immediately was, I know where you're going with it and I don't want to hear it. Now, that is... Um, <coughs> I don't know if I would call that trouble, but it's uncomfortable. And but man, what an opportunity! Steve is gospel-centered, and he he killed me for sharing this with you. So don't tell him I said it. 
But he he is. He's gospel-centered. He, as he sells cars, is gospel-centered. And a great example of that. And it brings trouble and trial into his life. He has it with his family. Um, I encourage you, if you have trouble like that with any relationships, talk with Steve. He will uh, pray with you. He'll sit with you and listen, and he'll give you some encouragement. Fourthly, gospel ministry finds its boldness in God alone. I love this in verse 2. We had boldness where? In our God. In our God. The word boldness there is literally, we had all speech. We have all the words. It, it denotes the state of mind when words just flow freely. It's the attitude of feeling quite at home with no sense of restraint on you. It's, it's that kind of sense where you just had all boldness, you had all speech, you just felt free to speak. You just always felt that way. There, there's nothing, you know what you're like when you're with family or with friends. It's just like, man, you can just talk and you can just let it flow and it just comes. There's none of this. Well, I don't really know these people, so I'm going to be a little bit more guarded. I'm going to be a little more restrained. I'm going to put some filters up before. But you know what I'm talking about? When you're really at home, all that comes down, and you can just speak freely. That's what Paul's saying. We had that kind of fullness of speech, boldness to speak, and it was because we were in our God. We It's because of God. This word is always used, this word boldness in the New Testament is always used in connection with the gospel. Interesting. In our God. You know what that means? Putting that phrase there at the end, that prepositional phrase, in our God, it means that this is not our natural ability to be bold. It is something that comes in God and in God alone in your life. Because because Paul lived in his God, he's the one who develops this in Christ theme everywhere more than anybody else. Because Paul lived in his God, he was always at home. Think about it. He was always at home. He had that freeness to speak all the time because he wasn't trying to make his home other places. And because it didn't matter where he went. If he was in Philippi, he had this boldness to speak. Why? Because in his sense, he wasn't in Philippi. He was in his God. And then he could go to Thessalonica, and it didn't matter what they thought about him. He was in his God. He could just speak freely. He was so God-centered that his mouth just always was ready to flow with all boldness and all speech concerning God and the gospel. It's because he lived and he moved in God. Remember he said that in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, in God in whom we live and have our being. It's just this rootedness in God that it didn't matter what kind of hardship was around him. It didn't matter what kind of opposition there was. It could not take away his confidence to speak. It couldn't. And the question that I think of when I see that and I understand that is, what needs to happen in my life to increase my God-given boldness to speak the gospel? That's your question. What needs to happen? And then the thing I thought of was, well, praise God. It's discipline one. I need to get myself in God more. I need to come to his word and be filled up to the fullness of all that God is. That's what I must do. I get that way and I will have freeness to speak the gospel all the time with no restraints anywhere. There's the first gospel-centered truth. Life and ministry must be concerned first and most with engaging people with the gospel. Let's look at verses 3 to 6. Number two, in a gospel-centered ministry, God is the primary audience and influence. 
Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. This section, really, if you focus on the end of verse 2, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. God everywhere at the end of verse 2, flowing into verse 3, therefore our appeal does not spring from error, impurity, or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. God is there again. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. God is everywhere. God in Paul's mind is the primary audience in his gospel ministry, the primary one that he is walking before and laboring <clears throat> before. And God is his primary influence. Let's talk first about God being the primary audience. Um, four statements for you. God is the origin of our message and our mission. It's kind of the bookends on this section. Watch this. At the end of verse 2, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. There's the message, the gospel. And who does it belong to? God. It's his gospel. Now, wait a minute. Remember in chapter 1, what did Paul say about the gospel? It's what? It is his gospel. Okay, so now why is he now focusing on not calling it his gospel, but putting, calling it God's gospel? It was entrusted to him by God, right? Right. Yeah. In one sitting, he's trying to show that there has to be ownership of the gospel, and Paul had that. He, in a sense, owned the gospel because it had owned him. And now he's trying to emphasize something different. This message is, is uniquely God's. And the message comes from him. So God is the, uh, the message finds its origins in God. Now look at verse 6. How does he end it? We are apostles, and that's a key word. What does the word apostle mean? Sent one. We are sent ones of Christ. Sent ones of Christ. Where did that mission of being sent come from? Paul? No, Christ. So the message came from God, and the mission came from Christ. And so the proof that God is the audience over this is that God says, look, you don't determine what the message is and you don't determine what the mission is. I determine what the message is and I determine through my son what the mission is. God is the origin of both the message and the mission. Number two, or secondly, God tests us to entrust us with the gospel. Verse four. And by the way, verse three, that, that's why the, the appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive you can't do that. If the message comes from God and you're being sent by Jesus Christ, the message cannot be full of anything in verse 3. But we are tested to entrust, uh, to be entrusted with the gospel. Here comes your second sandwich. Are you ready? Look at this, number 4, verse 4. We've been approved by God. Top piece of bread. What's the, how's the verse end? God tests our hearts. Same word. It's the word dakimazo in the Greek, which means that you test in order to prove the genuineness of something. You used it to talk about refining metals. Um, if you had gold, the way that you found out if it was really genuine is you put it in the flame. And it would melt down and all of the dross, all the impurities would come to the top and the smith would take off, not with his hand, of course, but he would scoop it off the top 
and keep going, and it would prove the genuine worth that was there in the gold. It was not to burn it, to punish it. It's not that sense. It's a sense of, I'm going to bring fire to it to bring out the purities that I know are in it. It's a very positive word, but it's painful too. And Paul says, we were tested by God. God tests our hearts. Why? What's in between the pieces of bread? To be entrusted with the gospel. We are tested by God to be entrusted with the gospel. That's amazing. So here's the scary thing, guys. Do you want to bring the gospel into your relationships? Do you want to become gospel-centered? Do you want discipline free to be uh, your ministry with people is all about the gospel? You need to put your seatbelt on because it's going to get hot. Because God, who does this message belong to? The gospel of God? Whose mission is it? We are sent ones for Christ. Paul was a sent one of Christ. Um, look what Morris said. Leon Morris in his commentary. Um, I have the quote for you there. Since the gospel is of divine origin, no one may take it up upon himself to proclaim it. God chooses his messengers. And he tests them before committing the gospel to their trust. Wow. We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak. Not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. Third proof that God is the primary audience. God watches us and is always present. Verse 5. Hey, Scott. Yeah. Sorry. Can I Please. Back to the last one? I would love for you to. Um, I guess I'm a little bit caught up on, on God tests us because to test something means you have a hypothesis and you're trying to prove it. But God doesn't have a hypothesis, right? In ter- what, would, what are you saying the hypothesis is? That Paul needs to be purified? Right, is he testing us to prove us? Because God can't test us to prove us to him because he already knows. Correct. So he's testing us to prove us to others so that we have credibility with the gospel? Yeah, the testing here is really a purifying. So you can almost substitute the word purify. He purifies us to entrust us with the gospel. Um, because that kind of testing purifies so it's not that God is up in the air or, or doesn't know Paul's condition. He knows <coughs> Paul's condition. Precisely that's why he tests him in the sense of purifying him. Okay. So it's a burning off. One of the illustrations they use I, I, is um, in that terms of melting down the metal. The, the, the blacksmith or the whoever was handling it would scoop the dross off the top of it, and he would keep doing it until as he looked down into it, he would see what? his own reflection and so the point is that that Paul is being tested purified until Christ is formed in him and God is doing that so that the gospel can be entrusted to him deposited into him it's a great question so God watches us and is always present verse 5 God is witness we, we never came with words of flattery as you know no nor with a pretext for greed god is witness god is watching he is always present he's the one watching paul just has this god consciousness in the gospel ministry uh, fourthly we won't use authority to gain praise for ourselves verse six we didn't seek glory or honor or, or praise from people but whether it's from you or from others 
though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, listen, ambassadors in other countries, an ambassador who's representing a, its own, his own country, he can't expect to have a certain level of respect. That's the way it's supposed to be. And Paul says we could have done that as ambassadors of Christ, as representatives of Christ, but we didn't. He had that authority as an apostle of Christ. Hello, read First and Second Corinthians, where he is constantly having to defend his, his apostleship. And he hated to have to do that because that wasn't his way. But for the Corinthians, in throwing Paul in his apostleship out or being or diminishing that was for they didn't realize it, but what Paul's trying to say to them in Second Corinthians is in doing so you're actually diminishing the gospel. And I'm very concerned that if you diminish me, you're diminishing the gospel and you might not even have the gospel. Test yourself. But Paul won't use authority to gain praise for himself, and we are not to use authority, any authority that we might have in any position. Are you a small group leader? You got a position of authority. Are you leading a ministry? You got a position of authority. Are you an elder? You got a position of authority, but you don't use it in gospel ministry to gain praise for yourself. Let's talk about God being the primary influence in gospel ministry. Now, what I want to do is I want to back right back up and start at verse three again and kind of work through and show you that not only in Paul's mind was God the audience watching present, but God was as that audience, that one who was present, he was also influencing Paul, and he influenced him primarily four ways. That means if God is present, if it is the gospel of God, first, it purifies my exhortations. Look at verse 3. Our appeal doesn't spring then. If the message is from God, if God is present and a message belongs to him, verse 3, our appeal then doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. It purifies every exhortation. When you are aware that God is present, God is there. Verse 4, it opens my mouth. Just as we've been approved by God, God is there testing us, we speak. When God is purifying you, one of the effects is your mouth just gets opened to speak it. Thirdly, it drops my mask in ministry. Watch this. Paul is really trying to say, look, we were not, we didn't portray ourselves to you one way, but really we're something different. Back up to verse 3 and just follow this through to verse 5. Our appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity or in any attempt to deceive. We are approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak. We're not trying to just please you. We're not just trying to say what we think you want to hear. But really, we've got something else behind that, that once we get you happy, we'll spring it on you. Verse 5, we didn't come with words of flattery. We weren't trying to butter you up. We didn't have a pretext for greed. We weren't talking with you because we wanted to get you positioned in a certain place, and then you would find out that really we just wanted your money. We wanted to gain financially from you. Because God was present everywhere, it drops that mask. There is no mask in gospel ministry. What I am is what I am because the gospel has made me that way and God is watching. And lastly, it humbles my use of authority, verse 6. If, if God is everywhere and you're thinking about the message and thinking of, as you look at people, you're not looking for glory from people. You're not looking for glory from people. You're not looking for the approval of others. You're not driven by the approval of others. 
even if you have authority, you're not using that authority to gain over those people. Statement there below that, any authority I might possess in ministry, in gospel ministry, it's not about me. God didn't give you authority in your small group, in your discipleship relationship, in your ministry lead. He doesn't give elders authority because he's thinking, you know, I just like to give them authority. Authority is a tool that God uses so that his gospel might be advanced. And so any authority that I might possess in ministry, it's not about me. It's about the gospel. (coughs) Authority in ministry is always to be exercised under the approval, pleasure, and witness of God. Our first resort in ministry must not be the exertion of our authority for authority's sake. That's what Paul's saying in verse 6. Look, as apostles of Christ, we could have come in and said, look, before we say anything, just want you all to understand, we have authority. And because we have authority, you need to listen. That's not what the gospel does with authority. Um, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He said in the last night with his disciples, now, do you understand what I just did with you? Just got to wash your feet. I, you, you call me master and lord, and you're right. You're right. I am the master and lord. Um, but I did that as an example for you. Be a servant. Can I tell you my temptations with authority? Maybe they'll apply to you. I don't know. I am tempted in conversations, if somebody questions something I said or something I've done, my first temptation in my flesh is that they're, they're challenging my authority. I have authority. I'm an elder. That's my temptation in my flesh to have to fight. Look, your wife can ask you a question, guys. And then you watch the hair go up on the back of your neck and, Wow children here's my other temptation I can be too quick in a situation to make my authority the focal point I want to press my authority into the situation and make that be look let's all just draw look everybody look at my authority and then everything will become clear that's what I think guess what why did God give anybody any place authority? So that it would be a tool, a servant that would fade into the background and bring accent to the gospel. But my flesh loves to do with authority that which God never intended it to have. You can pray for me. That's a constant temptation. Let's do um, let's do one more, okay? Then we'll take a break. Number three, a gospel-centered ministry is characterized by motherly gentleness. This is very manly this morning. You're going to like this. You you guys need to be mothers um, in ministry. Mother hands in ministry. Isn't that exciting? Verse seven, we were gentle among you like, like like a nursing mother. That's probably not an image you want other men and people to think of in you. A nursing mother. I dare you to go to your small group with your guys and say, guys, I want you to think of me as a nursing mother. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. Um, 
gentle. That stands in contrast to verse 6. People who would rather seek glory from people, praise and honor from people. People would make demands. No, no, we, we weren't making demands. We weren't seeking glory. We weren't aggressive like that with you. We were rather gentle. Gentle in that way. Paul was very concerned to not burden people with the authority that he might have asserted among them. Gentle could also mean in this verse, babes, babies. Um, some manuscripts insert infants. We were children among you, infants among you. The point that Paul is after here is not trying to say, you know, strictly I'm, I'm, I'm trying to name mothers, I'm trying to name children, I'm trying to name fathers. Yeah, he wants to kind of use these illustrations, but his main point is to contrast men with authority against those who have no authority to wield. A child, an infant, doesn't have any authority. And he wasn't authority-driven. That's his point. Let me use examples of just humble servants. A mom has authority, but what is she doing? She humbles herself down to a child to nurse it. That's what I was like with you. I have authority <coughs> as, a, as a mom, but I, I descend, condescend down to you to, to care for you, to nurture you. In fact, we were gentle and maybe even like children who have no authority. We didn't have any authority to wield with you. It's a strong expression, what Paul's after here, it's a strong expression of, of the extreme lengths to which they went to not use their authority in their gospel ministry. A couple quotes from D. Edmund Hebert in his commentary. The idea is the condescension of the true Christian pastor who is willing to put himself on the level of others, which is the essence of sympathy. It is the application of the principle of the incarnation itself. Wow, Jesus taking on flesh, coming down. Yeah. So to break down condescend, con being with, descend to go down yeah. to the same level of. Yeah, and that can have negative connotation to it, yeah. depending on how we use it, or it can have really positive. You know, sure. People sometimes don't like it when others are condescending to them because you're doing it in a manner where you're making them feel like children, and you're trying to put the accent on the space between them as children and you as somebody who's not a child. It can also be very sweet in the sense of how sweet that God condescended to man. And that's the sense we're talking about. Yes? Um, I have a regards to this. It's in, in which regards is in regards of Paul talking to believers or Paul talking to non-believers speaking of the gospel. Very good. And anybody have a, um, thoughts on how to answer that? Do you, do you understand the question? Is Paul... Is Paul condescending to believers, or is Paul talking about condescending to unbelievers? Is that what your question is? What do you think? Both. Yeah, probably both. It's, he's, he's recalling them. To, he's, he's asking them to recall back and remember what they were like when he came. They, they were unbelievers. But even as apostles of Christ, and once they are Christians, Paul is you know, still in a, in, a, in a tender way coming down to them, to care for them, um, to lift them up. Calvin says, and I have a, uh, you need to put an S on the end of the word manifest, a mother in nursing her children manifests a certain rare and wonderful affection inasmuch as she spares no labor and trouble, she shuns no anxiety, is never wearied out by her constant diligence and attention. Wow. That's, um, <coughs> that's the way one with authority is to serve. 
So question for you to think about, and then we'll take a break, is, is this. How well are you, two things, there's two stages in gospel ministry that need to take place. Assessing the, the person or the people that you're ministering to. Where are they? Are they in Christ? Are they not in Christ? If they are in Christ, where are they? At what level? You need to be able to discern and assess where discern and assess where they're at. But then, it's one thing to say, "Oh, well, I know where they're at." It is another thing then to say, from wherever you might be, I know how to get to where they are. Do you understand? Finding out where they are, getting to where they are, to help them grow, to help them be built up in Christ. How well are you? Not only at assessing the spiritual level of another, but then gently stepping to their level to build them up. Um, you will come across people in ministry who will be able to, from afar, from the bow of a ship, fire across your little bow or someone else's smaller ship, and from a distance be able to very clearly and articulately spell out what is wrong and what is small and what is weak and what is not what it should be yet. And they might be right, and this is the worst part about it. Because they're right. The way they're doing it stinks, but they're right, and you have to listen to God and what they're saying, but they, they'll never make the move from the high brow, bow of their ship to come down. Guys, we don't want to be that way. You may agree with the assessment. It may be you really need to grow. You're, you're, you're here at this place in your stage in gospel ministry and, and just in the gospel. Um, and the point is, is Paul was able to come like a mother. Paul was able to come like a child. He came like a father. You'll see here in the next point. The point was he was he not only could assess where they were at, but he could get to where they were at. That's essential in gospel ministry. Um, as you care for people. How are you doing in that? Here's what, here, watch this temptation. You will find yourself tempted to want to be with people who are exactly like you. Exactly where you are at. Or, I just want to be with people who, from my perspective, appear to be maybe just a, you know above me because that's where I want to go. And, and But people who are like awkward about relationships and their views are a little kooky, and that, that can just drive me nuts. Um, if Paul was driven by being around people that were just like him, we wouldn't have the New Testament. We wouldn't have the church. But the gospel doesn't make you into that kind of person. The gospel forms you into a man who's very concerned to get near to others who need to be built up. I struggle with um, when with somebody putting myself in such a way that I don't I'm not trying to tell them that I'm better than them you know when you're sharing and, and encouraging and telling them gosh you know you really need to be doing this and this is why here's what here's what the word of God says you know I find myself saying over and over man I need this as much as you I, I'm not you know trying to get that across to them that hey you know I, I, you know, I need this too, but you need it too, <laughs> you know. Um, I struggle with finding the words to uh, to say that when I'm sharing with, you know, and mostly it's with family or with close friends that aren't where they need to be, 
um, you know, that I'm trying to encourage him to come alongside and, and sing. How, did, how would you guys, um, you understand what you're saying? How, did, how would you strategize a way to, what ideas would you come up with that would help you to not appear as your, the holy one on high? You know, I, I pray too. Um, you know, God, I have nothing to say apart from you. Please speak to, through me during this time or whatever I'm doing. But I saw that thought the whole time I'm sharing or talking with someone that I don't want to appear to them like I have it all together. That I'm That's probably 75% of the battle right there. <laughs> yeah. Is actually having that attitude. Oh, please help us to not come off as condescending in the wrong way. Definitely think. Sometimes I think the best answer is what comes to us first. Roll the dice, right? <laughs> the thing that came to me, and I, I think Scott said it like every Sunday, five times. Keep preaching, keep teaching, keep telling the gospel to me, to yourself. Because it, it's not like uh, some, some places you go and I think they act like, okay, everybody's a Christian here, so we're done with that part. So let's go on to self-improvement. So if you think you're on to that, or you get the false representation or false thought you are, then you can tend to beat down to people. But we just need to keep preaching, telling, sucking in, having over us the gospel. <coughs> How do you how do you practically um, display that in conversation with somebody? Derek, you got thoughts? Uh, I was thinking like especially I mean it, I would say it starts off like in verse six where Paul was speaking about the authority that it comes from. Um, like he was quick to say that listen, this is not me telling you what I think uh, you need or what would be best for you. Like this is what the Word of God says. This is what Christ has told me. Uh, and I think. easy for me to come and speak with anybody on the elder staff because I, I say a problem or say something that I'm struggling with and the first thing is you guys always say like yeah I understand that I remember uh, this incident or I'm struggling with that as well and it could be anything I'm like you guys don't struggle with that you're kidding <laughs> um, <laughs> but you, you guys basically do uh, in number seven you go to where I'm at uh, you address your own sinfulness in doing it and you say give practical examples as far as like well this is what God's teaching me Continually uh, with that relationship, like don't let it be a one-time thing where you ask them, give them, a, I guess, a rebuke or a, a, a reproof, and then just forget about it. But showing concern and uh, care for the fact that they're struggling with that. That's good. What else? Any other ideas? How you do that? Well, it's so implicit in all this is transparency and measure transparency. That's good. too sweet. And Tyler, from from what you say, it just sounds like. You're you're concerned, rightly so, with that, mm-hmm. and I don't I, I don't know that the listener could ever hear you as coming out condescending, not to exalt you, but but when you're when you're concerned about that and concerned about being um, accurate with with the truth of God, and also saying, look, this is me, and I need it just as much as you do. Mm-hmm. Sweet, sweet transparency is. Yeah. Putting it out. 
Well, I think you know. I think another side of that is, you know, the sinful heart is opposed to God. So, you know, you're sharing the gospel like, you know, like Scott was saying, it's something that they're an enemy of. So, you know, their response of condescension maybe isn't towards you. Maybe it's towards the gospel. That's so, really important. They'll separate that out, perhaps. Yeah. So maybe they're they think that the gospel is condescending because they don't see that they're a sinner that's in need of a savior. So that's okay. Or even well, if there are any of those that are, I think they are. Yeah. Right. That, that's hard. That's, that's true. Yeah, you know, most of your if you look at the trouble that Paul had with gospel ministry, it mostly came from religious people. Pharisees. There was the Alexander the Coppersmith. Who knows what? You know, he's just a pagan. Just didn't like Christians. And there's that element. But wow. You know, those were people who thought they were here. And Paul knew in the gospel that they weren't where they were. And just, that's a tough message to hear when you're self righteous. What, what did Paul say at the end of his life? Towards the end of his life, to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 2, 15. This is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the former, the chief of sinners. Right? Wait, this is the Apostle Paul. He's not the chief of sinners. He's the chief of apostles. I mean, this guy's. He's up there. But here's this. At the end of the, towards the end of his life, it's it's tremendous humility. Um, that's, a, that's really amazing. So I mean, there, that needs to be something that doesn't just it's not a switch you turn on when you're in a conversation. That needs to be who you are, who we are, and we need to pray diligently for God's Spirit to fill us to overcome that. The word of God to assault that pride over and over. In <clears throat> Don't restrict your interaction to people who are just like you. Right? All right, let's take a break. Five minutes or so, we'll come back together and we'll finish up um, the last three together. Okay? All right, everybody, let's pull back together. Let's finish this up. Just a reminder that um, we will not meet. Um, we will not have a second meeting in December. Uh, the next time we're together is January 10th, I believe. Is that what your schedule says? In the calendar? January 10th, 2009. you believe that? Be amazing. All right, so uh, just make sure you notice the calendar there. All right, gospel-centered truths for gospel ministry. We want to pick up with number four with verse eight.
chapter 2, verse 8. And we're going to eat our third sandwich. Are you ready? Now let's see if you can find it. You look at verse 8, and you tell me what the bread is. Okay? So being affectionately desirous of you, that's how it starts. How does it end? Because you had become very dear to us. Affectionately desirous of you, very dear to us. A go- number four, a gospel-centered ministry will be satisfied with nothing less than deep affection for people. Deep affection for people. That's what is being... Now what is in the middle of all that deep affection? We, yeah, we were ready to share not just the gospel, but our very lives with you. Wow. You see how Paul just, I mean, Paul can't think of these people. He can't think of this relate these relationships without thinking of the gospel. And he couldn't, it wasn't even an option on his mind of thinking, somehow let me get the content to you apart from me. I want the content with you. I come with the content. That's what you've got to be thinking, guys. I want the gospel to come to people, but I go with it. I'm a part of it, not because I'm the gospel. No, it's the gospel, and I'm a servant of the gospel. But the gospel, when it bears fruit in me, it makes me bring the gospel in my very life to people. See, God wove it into the very fiber of the gospel mission that it's not just content that comes over a screen and across the the internet and impacts another set of information someplace. It's one life bearing the gospel to another life and it goes together and the two lives get woven together. It's life on life. It's the gospel at the center of it all. And this goes back somewhat to verses 1 and 2. You yourselves know, brothers, that are coming to you. It wasn't empty. We had the boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of all that conflict. Um, Paul was concerned that after having been beat up by one set of people in Philippi, we're just going to come and engage with people again. That's what we do. Because that's what the gospel has made us into. The gospel makes us into men like this who become affectionate towards others. The goal is the gospel in ministry. The goal is the gospel in the ministry. You... When you're ministering to people, it is all about the gospel getting there. However, the gospel is never disconnected from life on life. Okay? You're very dear to us. It's a Christian quality of love. It's a love that is self-giving. This is not a desire in Paul to possess those that he loves, but a desire to give to them. And I think this helps. Look at chapter 1, verse 9. Remember this? All of those people in Macedonia and Achaia, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. It was marked out by this kind of affection, this kind of care, this kind of endearment. Um, Question for you then to think about. How is our effectiveness with the gospel impacted by the level or absence of affection for others. Think about the the impact the the gospel will have on people that you minister to if 
you have deep affection for them, and then take the gospel to another setting, and there's not quite as much affection. What impact does that make on the effectiveness of the gospel? So what would Satan love to use to weaken and dilute the effect of the gospel among people, among Christians? Strife. Strife. Man, absolutely. Just take that out. You don't even have to deny the gospel. You don't have to deny penal substitutionary atonement. You just don't have to like the guy. This is why it is so important for us to work hard to maintain our relationships together. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think it comes out with a, with a condescending part. You know, if you like the person, you're going to come down to the level in a nice, if, uh, you know, in a nice, uh, humble, loving, caring way, instead of just, oh, you're, you you're so me. below me, you know. <laughs> You know, I think if you don't have this like likeness that you like the, the person part, then you can go wrong in so many ways in that relationship. That's a great, great point. Absolutely. Got your question. Yeah. How? Uh, I'm just thinking, like, as far as balancing that with um, kind of what we were talking about before, by having trouble uh, with mm. the relationships, mm. um, but then also keeping certain individuals like at bay. I don't want to say F.A., but keeping certain individuals a little further back just because maybe they'll be uh, uh, bad influence, I guess. <coughs> um, like juggling that balance, showing affection, having trouble in the relationship, keeping certain individuals close, uh, other individuals need to be a little bit further away. Good question. Um, we know that if somebody is an enemy, Jesus taught us that we should what with our enemy? So you still love them. There's still affection for them. That doesn't mean you have to go hang out with them so that they can slap you again. But it does mean that you love them. Um, because where would we be if Christ didn't love his enemy? We'd be in a big world of hurt. Um, so if that means you have to go to work and sit in a cubicle next to the guy who hates your guts, you go every day, prayed up, built up, ready to show love to an enemy, and you remind yourself and rehearse yourself over and over how many days, weeks, months, years did God have to endure my rebellion and my hatred before he redeemed me. Um, yeah. I think, and I don't know if I'm understanding correctly, but I think there's some practical wisdom too. And, and like, I know I, I got saved out of, um, you know, pot and alcohol and, and, and partying and all that. And, and there was a time where God took me out of those relationships yes. because they were a bad influence yeah. on me. And so I think, yeah. you know, there is some practical wisdom to Absolutely. for a time when somebody's a baby. Um, yeah. You know. Because what, um, that doesn't mean that the, the withdrawal from them is an absence of affection. But it, it does mean that you your, your love for them is also driven by um, your concern for holiness of life that matches the message that powerfully saved you. And so you may need to actually withdraw for a time so that you can become what you must become apart from the temptation because of the weakness of your flesh. And that's actually great affection for somebody. I don't want to be near you because I will poison what you think the gospel is if I come near you and sin. 
So you, you withdraw. You there is, but that doesn't mean that your absence, uh, that you you're empty of affection towards them. It just means that you're not able to display it in ways that um, you would be able to had you been with them. And the goal, Lord willing, would be that we would become fortified in Christ, built up in Christ to the extent where we could be with them. I had to do the same when I was 19 and I got saved. I was a drunk. I was drunk five days a week, going to school, um, and I had to stop hanging out with the guys that I was partying with. And they called me all kinds of names, and it was a bummer. Um, but every time I hung out with them, as a young Christian, holiness of life did not come from my life. And I had to separate from them for a time. And um, I eventually got to a point um, a couple of years later, I was actually able to live in the same house with, with some of these guys. Um, and it wasn't a temptation anymore. But, um, yeah, I mean, you, you got to measure your own weakness and your own flesh. You need to get wise counsel um, so that you don't bite the dust. Because then you compromise the message. Um, John, yeah. Can we kind of sum up and say that? In all of these relationships, we they must be viewed through the grid of the gospel, mm-hmm. and what is best for the gospel presentation to that person. Very good. Um, I don't know, that's just kind of what was going through my head. That's a great. That's a great point, Mike. That's good insight. Um, your your gospel, um, your affection is 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 formed by the gospel for people, and then the gospel. Um, defines for you the extent of the affection and interaction you have with them because the gospel must be maintained and exalted and seem to be the pure message that it is. And for some, that will mean I can't be near to you because of the gospel. Because of what it's forming in me and what the weakness of my flesh when I am a part of what you are a part of. I can't do it because of the gospel. And then that gospel builds you up and you might say, and now I can be near to you because of the gospel. Because it has built me up and it has purified me and it has sanctified me to the extent that I must in affection draw near to you. So in affection I withdrew from you. In gospel affection I withdrew from you. In gospel affection I drew near to you. Um, so, yeah, that's, a, that's pretty insightful. Thanks, Mike. That was good. Um, number five. The gospel-centered ministry keeps the path to the gospel clear. I love this keeps the path to the gospel clear. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Um, Paul is wanting to emphasize um, that, look, we were not a financial burden on you. We worked. We labored. We toiled. We did it night and day because we didn't want that to be any type of a burden in our relationship with you, an obstacle in our relationship with you, an obstruction in the path. Um, and so as we proclaimed the gospel, we removed any obstacle in the, in the path. It was a financial obstacle that he was primarily thinking of. Um, and he did the same thing with the Corinthians. You know what? The Corinthians wanted to support Paul. You know why? Because it was the thing to do at that time. Orators and the wise sages. It was. It was like your group. You could say, "He's our guy. We pay him. He's the guy." 
And they wanted that to be Paul. And they wanted Paul to be different than the way he was. They didn't want him to talk with that foolish message like he was talking in 1 Corinthians 1. They wanted him to sound more sage-like and wise-like and with the wisdom of the world. And they wanted the pain, and Paul wouldn't let them. Paul said, I refuse to that. We're not going to take anything from you because that would be an obstruction to the gospel. It would make the gospel appear to be something that it's not. And so, and in other places, he had no trouble receiving money. Philippi, thank you so much, Philippians, for sending me that gift. You sent it, and it has overflowed from that. I have everything I need. Thank you. It wasn't a burden, and it wasn't an obstacle to the gospel. Um, and we know what Paul says I, what, in 1 Timothy 5. Where is it where he talks about the elder? Um, oh, I'm in chapter 4, that's why. Um, uh, 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you should not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labor deserves his wages. So Paul taught elsewhere that, look, hey, Pay the guy who is giving you the word of God. Pay the men. Give them not just honor they deserve as an elder, but honor financially. And then yet, if that becomes an obstacle to the gospel, that gets put aside. That, that moves so that the gospel is not instructed. Um, principally speaking for us, if we take the principle of this, of not having obstructions in the, in, for the gospel, can you think, can you recall an older, wiser believer who personally made sacrifices so you could keep growing in the gospel as they, they took any obstacles that might have been in the way and removed them so that the gospel could advance in you. And if you can think of somebody who is like that with you, you need to be thinking, I need to be like that with somebody. That whatever obstacles might be between me and him with the gospel and the gospel advancing, I'll move those out of the way to just... And look, that'll be at cost to you. It'll cost you um, time, maybe other friendships, any number of things, but remove those obstacles because a gospel-centered ministry keeps the path to the gospel clear. Number six, lastly, a gospel-centered ministry's primary goal is transformation of life that is worthy of God. Last sandwich. This one's a little more tricky to see, and I don't want to force sandwiches where there are no sandwiches in Scripture, but... Uh, this is one, if you look at transformation of life. Look at verse 10. You are witnesses and God also of what? Our transformed lives, Paul says. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you. Okay, You guys saw it. You were witnesses. God was too. Look how verse 12 um, ends. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. You need to live the transformed life. <coughs> so your bread in this is transformation of life. The top layer is Paul's transformation of life. The bottom layer is their transformation of life. And what is in the middle? Like a father, we exhorted you and encouraged you this way. We moved you towards transformation of life, not as a taskmaster, not master, not as a not as a king not as a, a police officer, not as somebody like that. We did it like a father does with his kids. Like a father does. 
But Paul has used every relationship possible. Mother, perhaps infant, father. So transformation of life is the goal. This comes back to, remember what we said uh, in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1? You want people to receive your ministry. You want people to receive you. But for what? For repentance. Remember? You, you remember what kind of... The report has come concerning the kind of reception we had with you of how you what? How you turned from idols to the living God. So, yeah, we want to be received among people, but only, only if they repent. And we're never happy if we're received, but there hasn't repentance hasn't come yet. It's the same type of principle. I'm going to exhort you, and I'm going to exhort you, Paul says, and I'm going to exhort you. We encourage you. Look at the, the emphasis in verse 12. We exhorted each one of you. We encouraged you, and we charged you. That's emphasis. Be transformed. Walk in a manner worthy of God. Gospel-centered ministry's primary goal is transformation of life. Okay? Now, what I want to do is I want to conclude with um, just some general observations from chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 12. Now, this is the inseparable, unbeatable combination in a gospel-centric ministry. Two things. You ready? You all know what's written book down. Um, one is proclamation. And number two, uh, one of two words, incarnation or demonstration. So there's two unbeatable elements of the gospel that must be together. Proclamation of the gospel and incarnation of the gospel or demonstration of the gospel. Okay. Now let's let's I've, I've listed here for you. Look at the emphasis that Paul has put on the gospel being proclaimed or coming to them. The message came to them. Look at verse five of chapter one. Our gospel came to you, not only in word. Paul's point is to talk about how it came in in in, in their interaction with him, but it did come in word. Our gospel came to you in word. Verse six. You received the word. Verse 8, the word has sounded forth. Paul's very concerned about the proclamation of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 2, we have the boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel. Verse 4, having been entrusted with the gospel, we speak the gospel. Verse 5, we're not about flattering speech or using words of flattery. We use the words of the gospel with you. Uh, verse 8, we wanted to impart to you not only the gospel of, of God, but also our very lives. The gospel had to come. Verse 9, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul is very, look, gospel ministry must be about getting the message proclaimed. It has to be. It can't not be. But what we also see in this same, uh, these same two chapters is Paul's very concerned that it was incarnated through him and demonstrated through him as well. Back up to chapter 1, verse 5. It was, it was so evident, it was so tangible, he could over and over say, um, you know, you know, you were witnesses, you recall what it was like. The, the interaction that they had together in the gospel was, was tangible. They could taste it, they could touch it. He drew heavy attention to the life-on-life -life aspect of his gospel ministry with him. He, he could say, it's measurable. You could see it. Look at verse 5. Um, you know 
what kind of men we prove to be among you. Verse 9, what kind of reception we had among you. You know what it was like to interact with us, to receive us. Verse 1 of chapter 2, you know yourselves, brothers, what our coming to you was like. Verse 2, that though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God. They know about Paul. They, they had tangible measurement of him. Verse 5, we never came with words of flattery, as you know. They could see it. Verse 7, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And why do I have that? Oh, gentle among you. It was He was incarnating it in a gentle way, the gospel among them. Verse 8, we're not just going to impart the, the content of the gospel to you, we're going to impart ourselves to you. Um, verse 9, for you remember, brothers, you can recall this, what it was like for us to be among you, what our gospel demonstration was. Verse 10, you are witnesses. You saw our conduct toward you believers. You saw how we acted and behaved towards you. 11, you know. You know. Each one of you, you know. Verse 12. Um, so what you want to think of, if you're thinking about discipline number three, is the gospel in all of its content must be proclaimed. It must be rehearsed when I'm in my small group over and over and over. And also... I need to demonstrate it. My life needs to come. My gospel life needs to interact with these other lives. Life on life together. So what I want you to think about in your homework, the question that I have for you there, how would you rate your own life on this combination? One of you, you will probably find yourself gravitating towards one or the other, being more of a proclaimer than you are a demonstrator. Or maybe more of a demonstrator, but you're shy about what to say. Does that, you know... Showing kindness and being a nice guy. We can do that. And that's not to say that it's not genuinely from the gospel. It might very well be, but we need to overcome the fear that we have of opening our mouths. Paul says, with all boldness we spoke, right? So rate your own life on this combination. Where are you strong? Where are you weak? And why have you become weak there? Ask God to show you, God, why have I become weak in, in demonstrating the gospel? Why am I the kind of guy that wants to just speak it more, but not really then invest my life? Why am I the guy who really likes to invest my life, but I just have a hard time speaking about why I'm doing this, what the gospel is? And then what has to happen to become stronger in that area? And then I really want you to rate our church from your perspective on this combination. What do you think Grace Bible Church is like in regards to these two things, proclamation and demonstration? And same questions. Where is our church strong in either proclamation or de uh, demonstration? Where are we weak? And then ask yourself the question, same thing. Why have we become weak in that area? And then what would you suggest we do to become stronger in that area? Okay? Now that's going to be for January 10. <coughs> okay? For the next time we're together. Any thoughts from you guys as we close out our time looking at First Thessalonians 1 and 2? We purposely, sorry, we, we purposely practice all kinds of different things. We, we want to get better at golf, so we go golfing. Uh -huh. 
we want to become better proclaimers, it, it stands to reason that we go out and, and practice proclaiming. Uh, and, and in the midst of proclaiming and realizing uh, our shortcomings in that, then we get to run back to God's word and supplement what we didn't know with, with what is written here. And it becomes stronger and stronger. And so it's like, how can we expect to get better in our weakness without tackling that by God's grace with practice? Yeah, that's really good. With others. Yeah. Community. Yeah. Don't just view... Um, yeah, and whatever strategy that you, know, you, you pick up, don't just do it personally. There will be times when you'll have to do it and you won't be able to wait for other people to join you to do it. And that's a, a no-brainer. But look for ways that you can grow in these where you're weak with other guys. Ask them to come along with you. Stuff like that. Take advantage. Listen, how many of you would say, for me, my weakness is in the proclaiming side? Let me just say Okay. JG, you guys, pick another day. You're going out. And all you guys, he's, you guys need to go with these guys. And you need to just, I don't care if you go and you just... You, you just watch, you just hand out some tracks. We've got a whole ton of tracks in the office we can give you. But you need to go with these guys when they go down the mill or wherever and, and they just share. That will take you out of, not because you must be a, a street corner preacher. That's what I know what God's calling you to, each one. No, no, it's not the point. The point is, go practice what's hard in terms of opening your mouth. And then watch what it does in the workplace for you also. Um, and if you are... On the other side, where you need to learn how to care for people better with the gospel in, in terms of demonstration, um, link up with somebody that you see who's really good at that in the church, who really has a way of caring uh, for people. And um, ask if you can shadow them. Go with them when they go visit. If, if you know somebody's sick, if, if Scott Demarest is home right now and he can't move his arm because he got cut open uh, because he had surgery on his shoulder, uh, call him this afternoon and ask if you can go visit him. And just <coughs> spend time with them. Somebody else who's sick. Okay? I know this is a scary thought for guys like you, but um, if you if you can like get on the helping hands list and like help cook a meal and go take it to people, go do that. Show care to strangers <coughs> in the body that you may not know very well. Other thoughts as we finish up this? Yeah. I was there just giving a little more thought, and it's maybe more conversation about the idea of just a se- separation, mm-hmm. separation from, and I guess my, my little thought too, is in terms of church discipline, mm-hmm. and we, we see in Matthew 18 where some dudes refuse to listen, we talk to the church, and after, after that, we treat them as a Gentile and tax collector. Basically, we're treating them as an unbeliever. Right. But I think there's a, sometimes there's an idea of how church discipline is not. Um, gracious, it's not kind because we're just putting them out of the church and we're completely separating themselves. That's not how we treat an unbeliever. We pray for the unbeliever, we evangelize to them, we comfort them, we, we show affection for them. Because we see, I mean, that's how we treat an unbeliever. We're, we're burdened for the soul. Um, but, I, and I, but I was trying to think a little more on the subject that we were kind of talking about in terms of those who are believers in our lives. And, and it's question would be just about 2 Thessalonians 3 mm-hmm. and verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life 
not according to the tradition from which you received from us. Um, and we're going to talk a later on in Verse 14. Verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with them so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And just, there's a, there's a kind of a dueling thing that says do not associate with him, but yet at the same time we're admonishing him as a brother. So, um, is this particular verse talking about someone who's in the midst of church discipline? Is this and how does this work where we're not associating with them, but we're actually acknowledging them at the same time? The second Thessalonians 3 in particular? Correct. The, um, I haven't given thought to this for, for a while, and my mind is racing. So I'll... I'll um, I'll do what Jeff said. I'll speak what comes to my mind first. <laughs> <laughs> we'll roll the dice. <laughs> I would think that this would be some type of a discipline set because there's no reason to keep away from a brother apart from unrepentant from the gospel. Um, he's walking in idleness. He's not in a, walking in accord with the tradition or the teaching that they had received from Paul. Um, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Don't, and yet Paul is, is adding there that you don't think of him as an enemy. You think you warn him like a brother. That doesn't mean like, I don't know if that necessarily thinks that you think of him as a brother in the Lord necessarily. I don't know if this is a specific situation. i got to take this out. Because I guess what I'm wondering is, there's a certain point in church discipline process when there's finality to it, where they have been yeah. put out of the church and they've been considered an unbeliever. Yeah. In which case, um, is, is this something, you know, maybe something prior to that final step where there's a time where there's exhortation from the church but there's separation from them? Because you're still considering them a brother. You know, you're not considering them an unbeliever at this point. I wonder, too, there might be something specifically tied in with just between Paul and the Thessalonians with that letter mm-hmm. as they received it that it was kind of almost maybe an accelerated discipline process too of uh, this is a letter from Paul and we are all called to receive the instruction that comes there um, and we're, we're, we're called by Paul to mark out those who don't. I'm going to have to look at this some more. Um, I haven't put that together with Matthew 18 for a while. What's in this on verse 7? He, he talks right after his initial command to it. So you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Um, and a little bit further on in verse 9, not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you follow our example. And it appears that almost this exhortation gives them is um, Christ, Paul says, you know, we were a model to you, but it appears how it appears that they were being influenced by others. Um, and, and I don't know if the warning is because of that, because they were being influenced by others rather than being a model among them, as Paul was among them. But so, and I have a little bit of capacity. I'm just trying to think how it kind of goes together with what we were saying today. Yeah, that's good. I need to take a look at that. I'll, I'll try to do that, and um, we can have a follow-up conversation on that. Um, 
the, the, I want to back up to a point that you did bring up, that even if we go through a discipline process on somebody and they are to be treated like an unbeliever, that doesn't mean, like Ben said, that, that there's no interaction with them at all. I want to come back to what Mike talked about. It was, it was very helpful. The gospel always um, is the grid through which you view somebody. And all that church discipline says at step four once they are um, not a part of the church anymore is now the God, you've been going to them with the gospel as a believer, saying the gospel is, is needed for your sanctification. Brother, please repent. The gospel is... The grace of God is there for you to be sanctified and to say no to this sin and to repent. So you were moved by the gospel to go to the, your brother. And now all that Jesus is saying is now with the gospel, go to him as if he is not a believer. So it's not that you stop interacting with him. It's that you now interact with him as if he's an unbeliever. And that changes the fellowship uh, in the church as the church ministers together and, and cares for one another. But it doesn't change necessary that there's no relationship. This is what you should even do in your family if you have somebody within your family who's demonstrating rank disobedience, unrepentance, uh, who, but they claim to be Christ. You, c you can still interact with them. Interact with them with the gospel as if they're not a believer. Um, and care for them that way. Um, and don't give them assurance that they're a believer. Um, so, anyway. Good point. I'm going to look that up too. Thanks for giving me one more thing to do. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Better yet, why don't you do it? <laughs> Just come back and report to us. All right. Um, here's what I want to do today. Um, if you have, I want to go ahead and have this uh, finish out. If, if you have some homework from last time, your um, do, you'll say at the top it's a bright or green uh fluorescent type thing. Make sure your name's on it and you can hand it to me. Leave it here on a table or something um, and we'll, uh, I'll, I'll take that. I really enjoy looking at your homework. If you have prior homework because like if you sat with Tom or with Smed in a small group and they didn't collect it from you but you want to turn prior stuff in, you, you can do that to me. Just make sure your, hand, uh, your name is on it and then I'll hand it back to you. Okay? And then for January 10th, make sure you... Uh, finish your homework from the questions that are kind of, you'll probably want to take that yellow sheet for January 10th and your notes of what we did today and watch where the questions line up as we went through and then it'll refresh your memory what we talked about and any notes that you might have taken it'll help you to answer the questions better. I wouldn't answer the questions on that yellow sheet without 2nd Thessalonians or 1st Thessalonians 2 out on your you know, in front of you. Okay, let me um, let me close us in prayer, and then I thank you guys so much for coming. I know it's a crazy uh, time of the year, and I uh, appreciate that you sacrificed and made it here this morning. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you that we can um, come to you, that we can be uh, in your presence as we study your word. And as we fellowship together, I thank you so much for these guys and their thoughts and their participation and the sharpening that it brings to me. Thank you for their friendship. Thank you for their service in this body, the way that they care for others with the gospel. And I pray for them, Lord, that you would strengthen their 
already um, really encouraging care we give others. Strengthen it so that it becomes even more gospel-centered. Make them into men who proclaim the gospel, who are not afraid to declare it with boldness, with all speech. Help them to feel at home in you all the time so that the words just flow no matter where they are, the words of the gospel. But also help them to grow in their um, life-on-life gospel living where they would want to have their life come up very close to that of another and um, help them to demonstrate it well. And Lord, our desire is to see broken and lost sinners be saved in this world um, through our own lives as we live out in the world and together as we serve together in this world in the gospel. So please, um, save sinners. Thank you for our salvation. And thank you for this day. Lord, help us now to go home, go wherever it is you have us to head, but Lord, help us to go with the gospel. We need you so much, and we love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody. Thanks for coming today. Uh, If you want to leave some homework, just put put it on the table right there. How about that? And then just make a pile. Make sure your name's on it. Thanks, guys.